You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 19th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme. The administration said this is an important success that has gone through the final gateway process for the launch of a reconnaissance satellite. North Korea launches more stuff, both upwards and outwards. How will the rest of the region respond? Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan insists to widespread scepticism that the imprisoning of a high-profile opponent is not political. We'll wrap up the headlines in the United States, where Elon Musk's endeavours in CEO by referendum may have come to an unhappy conclusion. And we'll take a close, very close look at Finland's tradition of sauna diplomacy. In the former agricultural society in Finland, sauna was the place where you were born and it was also the place where you were taken after you you died. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. North Korea has fired two more ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan. According to Japan's Defence Ministry, the missiles travelled about 500 kilometres from the launch pad at Tongchang-ri in North Pyongyang province. It follows North Korea's claimed testing of a new high-thrust solid-fuel rocket motor and accompanies the launch of what North Korea says is a new surveillance satellite. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Alessio Patalano, a professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence. Alessio, first of all, the missiles. These are very, very far from the first that North Korea has launched at or towards or over Japan in recent months. Are these ones any different? Uh, Good morning. In fact, good afternoon, um, Andrew. Um, Yes, they are, but but, uh, in a way, there's there's, there's three points to make here. Um, Because, yes, they are different, but no, they aren't different when it comes to the pattern that they are tracing. Uh, The more interesting launch was the one that occurred towards the end of last week, uh, the one with the solid fuel missile, because that that type of missile increases in terms of um, uh, uh, um, potential, if you want, for flexibility at the operational level. It can be launched by more mobile platform. In fact, with two modifications, it's the type of missile that you can even stick on top of a submarine. So, so, so the, the, the launch that we've seen on Thursday was really interesting in that respect. However, these two missiles are also quite interesting because the first images that we've seen, um, um, they, they seem to be um, a variation of not on one uh, a missile. Um, and also they were la- launched at a very sort of uh, uh, lofted angle, um, which they are, uh, the South Korean authorities tell us that these are medium range missiles. However, they travel a lot less than they could. Um, and so the question is whether it was because they were testing this new equipment or, or, or there's something else in there. Uh, but certainly what we've seen is launches that are consistent and certainly increase the interest towards uh, the April, the supposed April launch of a spy satellite, of a reconnaissance satellite. These are all moving pieces of that bigger picture. 
It does always seem when North Korea conducts tests like this that there's there's two things going on. There's the, the technological research aspect of it, and there's also the diplomatic, which is to say just frantic attention-seeking level of it. Which of those two do you, do you think is the priority with these launches? I think with these launches, there is an element of, um, or let me put it this way, you are absolutely right, and I'm, I'm really pleased that you put it that way, because it allows us to make a slightly bigger point, which is, the North Koreans have a, have a plan for achieving a certain technical proficiency. However, they never miss an opportunity whenever circumstances allow them to, to actually use a political, if you want, occurrence to make a bigger statement. Um, and, and so whether it is attention seeking or perhaps part of a response of certain dynamics taking place in the region, um, I think that's open for interpretation. But I agree with you that the two matters, I think the bigger picture is the technical one, and the one whereby they are on a trajectory to achieve a particular goals. And under Kim Jong-un, that's been something that has been sort of like uh, uh, uh, stepped up, not, notwithstanding the sanctions in place. So the technical would be, from my perspective, the one that certainly is the more, the, the more important. Having said so, um, we should not discount the political signaling attached to it. And so, for example, the fact that some of the missile launches of the last few months were attached on the back of... Uh, um, uh, coming closer of South Korea and Japan and the trilateral military exercise with the United States. Um, the Some also pointed out that last Friday, Japan announced the new uh, three documents for national strategy. And so these two launches, in a way, uh, uh, can be connected to that. Attention-seeking, yes, of course, but that is also meant to send some sort of political messaging, building upon, however, which should never be forgotten as the key technical objective here. Well... You mentioned that new Japanese strategy document, which is obviously an extremely important one in this context. What sense do you get from it of how Japan's attitude to North Korea might be evolving? That's a very good question, because I think North Korea was already being taken very seriously in the Japanese context. Let's not forget that Prime Minister Abe, late Prime Minister Abe, was very keen consistently to make a point about the fact that, yes, China is, if you want, is next decade and a half climate, but North Korea is today's weather, um, in the sense that, that we need to pay attention to what the Koreans are doing. And the last few months have been very clear. I mean, let's not forget that just a couple of months ago, um, there were trains that were halted and, and people that were evacuated because of a missile that flew over Japan and then sort of splashed up. Uh, uh, about 200 kilometers off the coast of Japan. So for Japan, that is a real thing. And even though the national security strategy certainly presents China as the greatest strategic challenge insofar as Japan is concerned, there is also a law in the document specifically on North Korea, North Korea missile program and North Korea nuclear ambition. So one should not discount that a lot of the trajectory of travel and the deterioration of perception of security landscape among the Japanese public has a lot to do with North Korea. So in that sense, I can only see a lot of the steps that Japan is taking that are certainly intended for that long-term strategic challenge, but also in the short and medium term is a way to go up a much better sense with the with the present and more clear, if you want, challenge that North Korea presents to Japan. But do you get the sense that Japan regards, I guess, the present situation as something that can be managed slash tolerated indefinitely? Because those examples you mentioned of North Korea actually launching ballistic missiles over Japan, I mean, that's that's obviously provocative. It's possibly dangerous. And I think most countries around the world would have very little sense of 
consumer about it. No, absolutely. And I think here the question is the extent to which we're going back to your earlier point about what's the balance between the technical element and what the technical element tells us about the North Korean arsenal overall and that political signaling. At the moment, a lot of what the, the, the North Koreans are doing to achieve a certain technical proficiency or a, a threshold, if you want, of, of belonging to a club of a country that can fire intercontinental ballistic missiles and have a proper sort of like a, if not recognized, but real nuclear uh, deterrent, right? So in that sense, whether it is a strategic option, right, to empower the North Koreans with the with with a bargaining, a political bargaining negotiation, whether it is a, if you want, a tactical operational challenge. Um, we don't know much about the depth of the North Korean arsenal in terms of how much it works and how much it will be capable of sustaining itself. One thing is to uh, try to evade sanctions, to develop the technical know-how. Another thing altogether is produced in maps. So at the moment, from a Japanese perspective, there's a question, this is a strategic, you know, this is a strategic issue which on a daily basis translate into this regular periodical sort of um, uh, missile launches, uh, to what extent that becomes, a, a, a, a, if you want, a real uh, a acute military threat to the way, for example, in the UK, Russia is perceived. Uh, that's a slightly different game. And I think that's where uh, the, the point you're making about, you know, can you live with this? That's where the conversation in Japan is. Can we live with this because it is a strategic signaling or do we actually have a real problem? It's not the occasional testing. It actually symptomatic of a different and changing challenge with the capacity to produce and sustain that operationally would be a real problem. Alessio Patalano, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Russian President Vladimir Putin has travelled to Belarus today, fueling fears he intends to pressure his ally to join a new offensive in Ukraine. The visit comes as Russian drones attacked Kyiv in the latest assault targeting key infrastructure. This is Putin's first visit in over three years to Belarus. Thailand's military has been deployed to try to locate the 33 Marines missing after a corvette sank overnight in the Gulf of Thailand. Three Navy vessels and two helicopters were sent to find the missing. An overnight rescue mission in bad weather secured 73 of the 106 people aboard, with the remaining 33 forced to abandon ship. And a new deal to protect nature has been agreed at the United Nations Biodiversity Summit, COP15. The historic agreement was finalised in the early hours of today in Montreal, Canada, and it will put 30% of the planet under protection by the end of the decade. There will also be targets for safeguarding vital ecosystems such as rainforests and wetlands. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Sophie. You're listening to The Briefing, and it is time now for a roundup of what is making headlines in the United States with Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack, who has flown in specially for the next six minutes. Actually, that's not entirely true, Chris. You, you have flown in for an extended bit. An, an extended bit. I will be here in the London office for this week, of course, ahead of the holidays as well. I just can't resist European Christmas <laughs> markets, as, as I think you know, Andrew. So that, that is a key part of why I'm here for the holidays. But... While I'm here, why not a bit of US news? Well, indeed, and while you are here, like, you know, not wishing to, to cast doubt on your judgment about when would be a sensible time to leave <laughs> the United States, potentially a genuinely historic day looming in Washington, D.C. Well, what's interesting when you say that, Andrew, is yes, potentially a historic day, although it's not such... It could also be a damn squib in other ways. Mm. But yes, today it could be a historic day. It is the day that the January 6th committee 
that has been investigating the insurrection on Capitol Hill from 2021 um, will hold its final meeting, its final committee meeting, at which they will essentially go through all of their results. All of the members will reveal different chapters, different aspects of the investigation um, that they have been doing. All will culminate in a potential, as many people are expecting, uh, criminal referrals with Donald Trump at the very top of that list. And he could be referred to the Department of Justice for, according to reports, three counts, insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy to defraud federal the federal, the federal government. And all of this, of course, relates to Donald Trump's efforts to have the 2020 election mm. overturned. This is what was documented by the January 6th committee. And this is their final, this is the final week. Their report will be released on Wednesday. But today, in a way, is the key day where they will be announcing whether they formally recommend that Donald Trump is charged for his role in January 6th. To be clear, though, this does not oblige the Department of Justice to do anything, does it? Which is why I would say, on the one hand, this is a historic day. On the other hand, it's it's it's a little bit much to do about nothing. If if, if you know, if you want to look at it that way, there is no obligation for the Department of Justice to follow up on this. The Department of Justice has its own investigation going mm-hmm. on under a special counsel, Jack Smith. So really, what this is about is him being given a whole new set of reams of information, testimony, over 1,000 interviews that this committee did that he can then use for his investigation. But he has also been subpoenaing people in addition to that. His investigation from from some reports is focusing more on Georgia, where there was more specific effort by Donald Trump also to subvert the result in Georgia. Um, you know, spe- as, as many people will know, he was speaking to the electoral director there, Brad Raffensperger, about, you know, trying to find additional votes in order for him to go over the top. So that is one of the focuses of the Department of Justice's investigation. Where that goes, nobody knows. Uh, we should move along to, I mean, there's all sorts of seamless links, I guess, between <laughs> Donald Trump and Elon Musk, populist billionaire blowhard who may or may not take seriously the results uh, of any kind of vote. But Elon Musk, uh, 12 hours ago or so, put up a Twitter poll saying, should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. And Chris, those results are in from a not unimpressive 17 and a half million votes. 17 and a half million people voted by 50 57.5% that uh, that Elon Musk should indeed step down from Twitter. So yes, we have not yet, as of going to air, heard any kind of response from Elon Musk himself. But as you say, he did say that he would abide by this Twitter poll. And frankly, it wouldn't be entirely surprising if he actually abides by it. This may have been his way of getting out mm. of, of the madness, frankly, that, that we've seen at Twitter uh, over the last weeks and months with, with him in charge. Uh, but particularly, I think, what, what we've seen um, and, and what may have pushed this on is the fact that Tesla, his mm. own baby, the, what, the thing that he started has, you know, lost about half of its value uh, since the... Which is, <laughs> as which, a result. Is, which is not an inconsequential sum of money. Not an inconsequential amount. 15% just in the last week uh, as, as a result of everything that has been happening at Twitter. So there is very much a worry at Twitter that... Uh, a worry at Tesla, excuse me, that Elon Musk has overstretched himself and that he should focus back on, on, tw- on uh, Tesla and on SpaceX for that matter as well. That said, I spoke to an employee of uh, Tesla 
Tesla over the weekend who said even, frankly, at Tesla, there are feelings that they, they can do better without him at this point, that much of, <laughs> much of his focus is, is just a bit of a distraction. Um, but it will be very interesting to see in that sense, yes, whether he follows this. Uh, he will still be the owner of Twitter. So in mm -hmm. that sense, he still will have a tremendous amount of power, but perhaps he wants to install another CEO for the day-to-day -day running of it, which probably makes sense. Could I just say, though, at the risk of tempting fate, there were those photos of him at the World Cup final in Qatar over the weekend, accompanied by Jared Kushner. Well, I thought when you were going to go for a seamless link at the mm. beginning, that would have been exactly <laughs> it, because he was there with Jared Kushner, uh, son-in-law of Donald Trump. So, yes, there has been a very specific link there as well. Um, yeah, Because there has been, I, I think, of the many things we have learned about Elon Musk from this experiment, few of them redounding to the benefit of his reputation, is that he does have a certain amount of I'm going to go ahead and say affinity, if not necessarily sympathy, with the cranky far-right populist conservative faction. He has, and he has gotten increasingly political, of course, uh, with, with his pronouncements over the last few weeks. And in that sense, it has not just been about Twitter itself. He also attacked Anthony Fauci, suggesting Anthony Fauci should be prosecuted for his role in COVID. So, yes, he has... He has increasingly, uh, well, again, this goes back to, I think, this fact that he is increasingly distracted from his companies and his business by many of his pronouncements. His, his announcements, pronouncements are probably not going to stop any time soon, but perhaps at least stepping a little bit out of the Twitter limelight will, will help his companies to survive in better form. Chris Chomack, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. This is The Briefing on Monocle 24, and we will go to Turkey now to get the latest from the region with Hannah Lucinda-Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. Um, Hannah, there's really only one story in the Turkish newspapers today. Yeah, absolutely. Flicking through the newspapers this morning, and it's certainly the few opposition newspapers left uh, left on the newsstands, they're filled with Ekrem İmamoğlu, the mayor of Istanbul, who was convicted last Wednesday of insulting public officials, handed a two-year, seven-month prison sentence, but more importantly, also a ban on holding elected office. Um, now, as you can imagine, this has not gone down too well in Istanbul, where İmamoğlu I mean, A is the, is the voted official he was voted in in 2019, but also has proved quite a popular figure. Um, you know, as I've seen him out and about across the city, he always kind of draws a crowd no matter what he's doing, whether he's just, you know, out and about meeting people, whether he's opening you know, new libraries, new ports. Um, he's really built up a groundswell of support here. But for President Erdogan, Emamolo is perhaps not in these coming elections, but in the future, probably the biggest a uh, single threat he's going to face. There's no one else really within the opposition which has the kind of charisma that Imamolu has. Um, and clearly, you know, the, the decision by the court uh, to take Imamolu out of politics is you know, in the short term a blow for the opposition, but I think in the long term we, we might see that it's actually going to galvanise the opposition and also boost Imamolu's image. Well, Erdogan, of course, is is claiming that there is nothing at all political about this case. Is anybody taking that seriously? Absolutely not. I mean, if you look at the justice system since 2016, when there was a coup attempt against President Erdogan, 
that coup attempt was crushed. There was then a backlash, uh, which involved hundreds of thousands of civil servants being removed from their posts. Now, the judiciary was particularly hit hard uh, in those crackdowns. About a third of judges and prosecutors have lost their jobs and been replaced since 2016. And if we look at institutions like the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, um, the people who now staff those courts are overwhelmingly Erdogan loyalists. And there's very little pushback um, against these kind of decisions. Because the, the very charges of which he has been convicted and indeed sentenced, I mean, this is nonsense, isn't it? Insulting public officials carrying a jail sentence. That sounds like one of those uh, offences you create. So you've got a pretext to lock up people you find disagreeable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this isn't just a recent thing. Like going back throughout Turkish history, a startling number of number of people are prosecuted and often jailed on the grounds of insults, be that against uh, Ataturk, the founder of the Republic, uh, be that against the serving head of state, of course, in this case, Erdogan, who's proved you know, very, very willing to pursue these kind of cases, and also against public officials. It is officially a crime in Turkey to insult public officials. But I mean, we can ask, well, what was Imam Olu's insult? So going back to the 29 elections here in Istanbul, uh, Imam Olu won those elections by a very fine margin. Uh, and the Supreme Electoral Board, again, another institution, that's very much dominated by Erdogan's loyalists decided to cancel that election saying there have been irregularities uh, and run it again. And Imam Ali put out a statement after this calling the members of that electoral board fools. Now, this is the insult that he's accused of. Um, but, you know, Erdogan, although, you know, as I say, in the short term, he's maybe got his most charismatic rival off the table. You know, if we think back to the start of Erdogan's own political career, when he was mayor of Istanbul back in the 90s, he also was handed a political ban and a jail sentence for inciting religious hatred. He had re uh, read out an Islamist poem at a rally. The courts at that time also, you know, let's not say entirely neutral. They were at that time dominated by kind of secularists, very, very scared of people like Erdogan, more Islamist politicians. And he was handed a political ban as well. Now, of course, eventually he overcame this. Uh, he, he was overturned to allow him to become prime minister and he's been in power for the 20 years since. But, you know, we can really, if we look back at Erdogan's own career, that political ban was really the start of it. Up until then, he'd just been the kind of mayor of Istanbul. The political ban turned him into this kind of figurehead of free speech, of religious freedom. You know, Amnesty International rallied around him. And, you know, really, you, you do have to wonder whether, you know, the history is going through Erdogan's head at the moment, you know, seeing the reaction, uh, not only from people in Turkey, but also from across the world. The US State Department has put out a condemnation. Mayors across Europe have kind of rallied to Imam Ali's defence. So I think, you know, he's not going to go down fighting. He will take it to appeal. Um, his lawyer confirmed that to me last week. Um, and I think, you know, in the long term, it, it could actually prove to be a career boost for Ekrem Imamalu. Hannah Lucinda-Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15.
This is the briefing on Monocle 24, and finally on today's show, some seamless cross-promotion for Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk. The latest episode is a Finland-themed Christmas special, including one former Finnish president, Santa Actual Claus, a whole bunch of epically miserable Christmas carols, a choir of shouting men, and in this excerpt, a reflection on the merits of sauna diplomacy conducted in the sauna of the residence of Finland's ambassador to the UK, Jukas Jukasari. I began by asking him to define the peculiar value of sauna diplomacy. Well, sauna has a long tradition of being a place of peace. For Finns, it's a place not only for hygiene and getting a bath, but also a place of relaxation. It has something almost spiritual to it. And then, of course, in diplomacy, sometimes you end up in situations that are extremely difficult to solve. And I think the theory goes that if you bring then your counterpart, if you're able to convince him or her to join you in a sauna, that might open up certain problems and issues and a resolution or a solution might be found. Is there kind of a mythology within the Finnish diplomatic service of times when sauna diplomacy has led to a breakthrough, when you you have sort of great potentates from various nations who might otherwise be crossing swords or glaring at each other over a conference table? You park them in here and everything sort of somehow gets sorted out? We have anecdotal in evidence, but probably not anything that would hold up in a scientific research. <laughs> there is a story of our former president Kekkonen, uh, who was a president for a long time in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And he did often take the Soviet leaders to his sauna when they visited Helsinki. And the anecdote goes that he also had then Secretary General Khrushchev of the Soviet Union in his sauna in Helsinki. And they spent a very long night there up until the early mornings, consumed reasonably high amounts of alcohol as well. <laughs> And in the end, sort of a solution to the issue that they were talking about, which was Finland's integration to the West, was found. But whether this holds too much truth to it, I can't really say. And it may, of course, have had more to do with the alcohol than the sauna. But for you personally, how often do you bring guests into this thing we're sitting in now? Well, to begin with, I'm rather careful with that because you have to take cultural sensitivities into <laughs> account, certain colleagues of mine come from cultures where nudity is is an issue that they are almost afraid of. Of course, in a sauna, you don't have to be nude unless you want to. The Finns do it, and and for us, it's very natural because for the Finns, the sauna is a family institution. So Mm. families, parents and children uh, go to the sauna together, and it's completely natural to be without clothing. But you have to be very careful. What I usually do is I don't ever invite somebody that I don't know well to the sauna and definitely not somebody who I don't know well and who I know is not familiar with the culture. If I have a colleague who says that he's an avid sauna goer and I meet him for the first time, no problem. Have you noticed that there is a range of opinion about the sauna or a range of reaction to the prospect of the sauna among the diplomatic community here in London? Are some nationalities notably more reticent than others? It has to do with their culture back home, so you can't really draw regional boundaries there. The Japanese, for example, I think are rather relaxed with the sauna because they have their own hot bath onsen culture, which includes nudity as well. But then some other Asian nationalities, I'm sure, have have much more reservations. And one thing, of course, that I think is a handicap for the sauna institution is that in 
in certain places in the world is has a very sexual meaning or almost a, a brothel-like connotation which definitely doesn't come from Finland and, and has never existed in Finland. You were saying earlier that there was uh, almost a spiritual component to the sauna for Finns. Could you elaborate on that? What would you say the sauna means to Finns? Well, in the former agricultural society in Finland, sauna was the place where you were born and it was also the place where you were taken after you, you died. And the society of that time, that was of course very logical. The sauna was the only place in an agricultural dwelling setting where where you would have or could have warm water around the year. It was also the cleanest place in the farm, so uh, that's why it was quite natural to give birth in a sauna. And then when it came to death, the body has to be wa- had to be washed mm. before the last rites were performed and, and, and the body was then put to the ground. And again, sauna was very handy for that. So in that sense, the spirituality comes from the fact that Sauna's important arches from the beginning of life till the end. It occurs at this point that we are going to need some sound and noise to further convince our listeners that we are actually sitting in one. Have we arrived at the moment of the sauna where you, you throw some water on I think this the would heat be over the, there? Exactly the right moment. So normally what you do is you spend a little bit of time in the sauna so that your body gets accustomed to the heat. You start sweating slightly and then you throw a modest amount of water on the stones, which I'm now going to do. With your permission, of course. Go ahead. There it is. Authentic Finnish sauna noise. But about this particular sauna, is it an important thing to take care of whenever any new Finnish diplomatic mission is set up, that you must, as part of fitting out the building, install a decent sauna? I think that was very much accepted when we... um started new embassies and, and, and took new buildings into use, let's say, up until 20-30 years ago. So nobody questioned that in in Helsinki. And I still think I haven't checked on the embassies or representations that we have opened over the last years whether the budget of, of building a sauna <laughs> in a residence goes through easily, but I would presume it does, because it has a special meaning. And, and of course, many diplomatic colleagues know and they often ask me that you have a sauna, don't you? Because they expect that from other locations. <laughs> that was Jukas Jukasari, Finland's ambassador to the United Kingdom, live, well, not live, but recorded actually in the sauna at the Finnish ambassador's residence here in London. You can and indeed should find the rest of the Foreign Desk's Christmas special on our website or wherever superior podcasts are downloaded. That's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello and our studio manager was Sarah Nickel. The Briefing returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>